the children's church, if you would meet Melody in the back. For the rest of you, let's open up our Bibles to 2 Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 10. If you're visiting, we are going through the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, We're basically, at this point, I think we're a chapter a week, every week until we finish it um, in a few months. So we're at 2 Samuel chapter 10. Uh, we'll, We'll read the passage as we go along, as we often do. Uh, so let, let's actually pray before we get started. Let's pray before we get started. God, we, we come before you right now acknowledging, Lord, our absolute dependence upon you. That's something such as opening up a book and reading words from a book and hearing somebody uh, do a monologue. It, it seems so old-fashioned. It seems so outdated. But God, we realize that there is power in all this, not because of of who we are. It's not based on the speaker. It's not based on any of that. It's because your word is living and active and your spirit is present in our midst. So we pray uh, to that end that God, you would open up our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Do you prefer to see clearly? Do you find it beneficial to have a clear line of sight, to have good vision? Yesterday, I'm driving uh, my son to a birthday party, and this weird white stuff was all over the windshield. And I was like, that can't be snow, because we're in November. And it was, and the snow was building up upon the windshield. And surely, what did I do? I turned the wipers on, because if I did not, driving down 75 with my windshield covered with snow did not bode well for my driving trip. When I was driving through my neighborhood today, a lot of the cars there were outside that weren't parked in garages, covered in a a glaze of of ice and frost. And I guarantee if anybody had to drive from that neighborhood this morning, they had to turn on their, their defrost. They probably had to scrape in order for them to be able to see. I mean, there's a reason why people buy glasses, people get uh, contacts, because they want to be able to see. If you're going to go sign financial papers and you forget your glasses and you need to look at what you're going to sign, you're probably going to go back and get your glasses. Why? Because you need to see what you're doing. When our vision is impaired, it can lead to our own demise. It is crucial that we see clearly. And in today's passage, we see what happens when you don't see clearly. We see what happens when you don't see the king rightly. We see what happens when people reject the loving kindness of God and the consequences that result are quite grave. At the end of the day, what chapter 10 is for us is it's a, it's a charge to embrace the king while you still can. If you're going to take notes, I'm going to get a glimpse of where we're going Uh, We're going to break up the passage really simply into those two categories, the people that see rightly and the people that don't. We're going to begin our time by seeing the king wrongly. We're going to see what happens when you do the wrong thing, when you're blind, when you make foolish mistakes, when it comes to the loving kindness of God. But then we'll wrap up our time by serving the king rightly. We'll see what it looks like when we rest in his grace and his goodness. 
So let's get started as we pick up at verse 1. Seeing the king wrongly, what not to do. Now last week, it, it was really, I don't know about you, it was such an encouraging passage. We saw in chapter 9, David shows, does anybody remember the Hebrew word? Starts with an H. Hesed. Hesed love. Loving kindness. And he shows it to Jonathan's son, Jonathan, who was his best friend, his son, his crippled son, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, really, he was, a, he was an enemy of the state. He was from the line of Saul. He would have been a potential threat to David's throne. But David had made a promise to Mephibosheth's brother, or dad, that I will, will not wipe out your family. I will take care of them. And he goes above and beyond where Mephibosheth goes from having nothing to having everything from being despised to sitting at the king's table. Well, Hesed is also the theme of chapter 10. So David is now going to go from showing Hesed to his best friend's son, and he's going to show Hesed to the nations. So we see in verse 1, kindness is offered. Read with me. After this, the king of the Ammonites died and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servant to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. So he is extending loving kindness now. And this is radical. This is wild outside of Israel. Chapter 7 was a Davidic covenant we saw. And one of the things that David picked up and realized in the Davidic covenant, it was not a new covenant. It was a furthering of previous covenants. And one of the particular covenants that we uh, camped out on and, and looked at a little bit was the Abrahamic covenant. That God had entered into a covenant with Abraham and he promised him that I'm going to give you a people, I'm going to give you a place, and I'm going to bless you so that you will be a what? A blessing. And David realizes that. And we saw it last week with Mephibosheth. Who can I show the loving kindness of God to? That David realized I'm an instrument of God to bless other people. I've blessed my best friend's son. Now I'm going to bless the nations. So he goes on and he's going to bless uh, the Ammonites as a result. Uh, what we need to do, though, before we move on is we need a lesson from history. So David here's king of the Ammonites has died. His name was Nahash. So his son is now ruling. So we, we need to remember at, at this time, especially with battle, often you would use either a sword or a spear or something in your right hand because most people, let's be honest, how many people in here are left-handed? Raise your hand. Very small. Now, everybody who's right-handed, raise your hand. A lot more right-handed people. So you would battle, all right, you have your sword in your right hand, and then what are you going to use your left hand for? Your shield. So but when you hold that shield up to protect you, which eye is typically blocked vision-wise? The left. So the right eye is really important in battle. Well, if you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 11, our king came along. And he said, here's the deal. You're going to bow down to me. And if you don't bow down to me, I'm, I'm going to kill you. But if you bow down to me, here's the catch. 
I get to gouge out all of your right eyes. Sounds like a good, like it's a fair deal, right? I won't kill you, but I'm going to take everybody's right eye. It would have been humiliating, and it also would have made them very uh, difficult to fight in battle. Guess who that king was? Nahash. Nahash was the king. He was a bad man. He was malicious. He was oppressive. And if you remember, too, his name, Nahash, meant something in Hebrew. Does anybody remember what it was? Serpent. Do we have any history of a serpent in the Bible that was not a good guy? Right? Genesis 3, in the garden. Genesis 3.15, it's the one that God says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring, serpent, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's the gospel. That's Christ versus Satan. It, it's the it's the, really the Bible story in a verse, and that is the king, and that is the king's family that David is going to show Hesed to. I mean, it's unlikely, right? It seems weird. It seems ri- ridiculous. I mean, uh, Dennis Rodman, former NBA basketball player, one of his random close friends is King it's not king, is the president of North Korea. Is it King Jean, what's his name? Yeah, that guy. <laughs> he's, the, he's buddies, and it's just weird, like you're of the, one of the most oppressive dictators in all of the world. You're like Facebook friends with, like I send him a Christmas card. It seems so out of place, and and. That's what's going on here. It seems so strange that David has some relationship with Nahash. Uh, we don't know how it happened, some unlikely partnership. It might be the friend of an enemy is a friend to me. Uh, Saul ends up defeating Nahash. Saul was pursuing David, so he must have helped David at some point during that time. But Nahash is gone. We don't know if he ever became a believer. We know nothing. The Bible doesn't give any clarity. But what he ends up doing is he shows, I mean, the equivalent of what we do today when somebody's family member dies, we often will send what to the funeral home? He's kind of like sending flowers to the funeral home, this, this act of, of kindness. And I think we hear that and it just seems so weird. Like, David, why are you showing hesed, loving kindness, to Nahash. I mean, they were evil and wicked. They were going to gouge our right eyes out, and you're going to show loving kindness to them. But friends, isn't that the gospel message? Isn't the reality of you and I, apart from Christ, as we are Nahash, we are the enemy, we are in opposition. When you became a believer, what did God do? He preached good news to you in a state of, of, of a bad condition, of, of sin. Of, I mean, that's why Paul tells Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That part of our charge as followers of Jesus is to show loving kindness to lost, undeserving people because God showed loving kindness to you and I who were lost, undeserving people. 
Is there an unlikely recipient of the gospel in the New Testament that would be a great example? Because we look at like, man, you can't, you can't share this good news to Naash's line. He's evil. He's wicked. Who would be the New Testament equivalent? What's his name? Saul, who became what? Paul. And that's why Paul, he, he consistently, when he shared his testimony, he would call himself the what? The, the chief of sinners or the worst of all sinners. And God used him as kind of a case study that, hey, if God can forgive Paul, he can forgive anybody. That you and I, we're not in the job, it is not our responsibility to dictate who we preach the gospel to. We don't get to decide, like, he's unlikely to believe, or she's unlikely to believe, or he's unworthy of hearing the message, or she doesn't deserve to hear this message. No, friends, as Christians, you and I are commanded and called to reach everybody with the good news of Jesus, to offer Hesed to everyone because God offered Hesed to you and I. Why are you extending Hesed to the world? You write off certain people as being unworthy of the gospel. What if God would have wrote you off? But not only do we see the kindness that is offered, go on to verse three with me, kindness is rejected. It says, but the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their Lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he's honoring your father? Has not, God, has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? First of all, we see the folly of bad counsel. He has the wrong people whispering in his ears. Now, if you are investing money and you have somebody who handles your, your retirement, are all people in those positions created equal? Is everybody good at it? Everybody you invest money with, they're all going to get you lots. No, no. Are there people that are bad at it as far as incompetent? Are there people who maybe aren't just simply bad at it, they're evil and they're wicked, the Bernie Madoffs who, who use your money to get rich while stealing from you? I mean, it's very dangerous. You, you want the right people that you're getting counsel from. And when you get the wrong people, you get in a mess. And we see this consistently in the Bible that you want to put godly, spirit-led people who are giving you wise counsel. And what this king has is fleshly, wicked unbelievers giving him very bad decisions and it's going to be quite costly for this nation. We also see in this bad council skepticism on the goodness of the king. Who are they questioning? They're questioning the goodness of David. David's not here to, counsel, to, to comfort you. He's not here to show you compassion. You know why he's here? He's spying so they can figure out how they can attack us and take from us. Is there a time in the Bible where we see somebody questioning the goodness of the king? How about Genesis? You remember? In the garden? Back to that Nahash, that serpent. What does the serpent say? Genesis 3.1. Did God actually say, you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And he goes down to verse 5. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. And God doesn't want you to become like God. He's not good. That's the skepticism here. And that's what happens, friends, when we put ourselves around people who are not biblically based, who are not giving counsel and wisdom from the word of God. That's the danger, and I I would say that's a huge problem in our culture and society. So many of us are getting all of our wisdom, all of our counsel from the world. We get it from social media, we get it from the news, we get it from entertainment, we get it from athletes, we get it from all these people, and they're all whispering stuff to us that are lies and and foolishness and folly, and then we follow their leadership, and then we stumble and fall, life's a mess, and we're like, I don't know how I got there, because you put the wrong people in your ear. You want people in your lives who are giving you God's truth and his truth alone. Why are you buying the lies? Do you have wise counsel in your midst? But not only do we see the folly of bad counsel, we see the fruit of wicked hearts. Go to verse four with me. He says, so, so Hanun, he took David's servants, he shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent them to meet him for the men were greatly ashamed and the king said, remain at Jericho until your heart, until your beards have grown and then return. You see, they don't just simply reject the kindness of God. Is it possible to graciously reject somebody? Yes, it is. It is. I mean, especially like one of the things I'm trying to teach my daughter is she's getting older and suitors come along and guys ask her out. You don't have to say yes to every guy and you don't have to be mean when you say no. I remember as a, as a young man in high school, I remember asking a girl out and she was really gracious. She said, no, thank you. I'm not interested. Something about being flattered. Thanks for thinking of me. Now, did it take away the total humiliation of the rejection? It did not. It did not. It it hurt the pride a little. It hurt it a lot. But it would have been way worse when I asked her. She poured a drink in my face, knocked my books out of my hand, and then when I'm picking up my books, she kicked me and said, you moron. What were you thinking? There is a zero chance ever that me would go out with you. Now, that would have been really harsh. This is the kind of harsh that we see going on with the Ammonites. It's not simply, hey, we don't trust you, David. We're not sure what your agenda, what your aim is. So we're gonna, we're we're just, please leave. We don't want a relationship here. No, that's not what they do. They make a mockery of, they take up a notch. Uh, they, They cut the beard. Why is the beard significant? It would have been symbolic of their, their masculinity. It would have been shame. It would have been guilt. And they don't just shave the beard. They shave part of the beard. So they look ridiculous. They, they cut their clothes so their body would have been exposed. There would have been a degree of nakedness on the part of these soldiers. They were humiliated. Is this something new with God's people? Listen to what Jesus said. 
John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And that same idea that the world hates you, we see on display shortly thereafter with Jesus and John when he goes to the cross. And he doesn't just go to the cross, they spit on him, they mock him, they, they, they crucify him, and from the ages, even since then, what have we seen happen to Christians? Persecution, suffering, death, and affliction. That is what we see from the wickedness of the human heart. Friends, there's no middle ground with the king. You're either for the king or against the king. I think as Christians, we love this idea of this kind of middle ground, this neutrality, where he's like, oh, he's a believer. They're kind of close to being a believer. Oh, yeah, they're in opposition. No, you either oppose or against. And we see that. And I think in our culture, we're going to see that more and more prevalent as our world becomes more and more divided. So be, be ready, be, uh, beware. Why are you for the king? Are you against the king? Do you see that there is no middle ground when it comes to Christ? So we saw the what not to do, right? We see the king wrongly. Kindness is offered. I mean, the only thing they had to do is embrace the king. They didn't even have to become BFF with the Israelites and David, but they reject his kindness. But not everybody in our chapter today is in opposition to the king. First of all, let's look at the fight against. So we go to verse 6. And it says, when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers in the king of Maacah, with 1,000 men and the men of Tob, 1,200 men, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the hill country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Assyrians. Notice the abundance of enemies. Opposition is mounting up against God's people. And this is pretty quick because previously this was a time of what? It was a time of peace. It, it seemed like things were finally going to be kind of restful to David. And all of a sudden, now the enemies are, are lining up. It reminds me of like if you've ever played a video game and you're going against the bad guys. The further the game goes on, the levels get harder. You have to defeat more and more bad guys. And you get to a point in those games where you're like, when is this going to end? Like, how many bad guys do I have to beat? And friends, that is often the case when it comes to our battle as Christians. The Ammonites, they hire reinforcement. This is really Psalm 2. Listen to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves up. The rulers take counsel there against the Lord, against his anointed. No surprise by the number of enemies that God's people have. So stop it when you're shocked by the news. Stop it when you get so frustrated that, oh my goodness, there are politicians that are opposed to biblical principles. I can't believe it. 
That is the norm. Friends, here's the issue. You and I, in God's grace and in God's mercy, have lived in a country where we have been so protected, we have been so given freedoms, we've been so kind of let alone, and even sometimes celebrated, that now as you and I are starting to experience in a small way what the rest of the world experiences every single day, we're up in arms. And it shouldn't be the case. Genesis 3.15, right? I just read it. The proto-Evangelion. I'm going to put enmity. Enmity is hostility to the point of bloodshed. It's going to be between you, Satan, and, and my son, Jesus. And that's going to go on for the ages until Christ returns in glory. Now, now, does that mean we need to not have optimism? Will the gospel still advance? Yes. Because of the Holy Spirit. Because of the word of God. The church will still grow. God's plan will not be thwarted, but we need to have tempered expectations of what that looks like in this world. Are your expectations right or wrong? But not only do we see the abundance of enemies, we see the abundance of courage. Verse 11, it says, And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of God. You see the courage that he calls for, that he, because he, he, it would have been easy for them to do what? To be afraid? Because I mean, think of the odds. You're in the middle of the gym, okay? Let's take the doors out for this, but that would be a fire hazard safety. Just kind of with me. You got enemies on this side, enemies on this side, you're in the middle. That does not look well. What would be the easiest thing to do? Tuck it and run? Because you're scared, right? Like when we see a threat, we're scared. I remember the day, so I used to, at, in the summer, my family would go on vacation sometimes to the Allegheny River. And I've shared this story years ago, but... Um, I would sometimes wander. We'd be on our boat on the Allegheny River. We'd go over to the shore, and I would go wander in the woods. I was a young, I don't know, eight, nine-year-old kid just kind of playing around. Well, one time, my stepfather thought it'd be funny to do something. So I'm up in the woods, and all of a sudden, I hear a rustling of trees and leaves. And instantly, I stop, and I'm, you know, I'm looking. And then all of a sudden, he goes, and then starts growling more, and then he starts running. I've never in my life ran so fast. Literally think I could have made an NFL team that day. I might have set a world record. I ran, I got to the shore, I jumped in our boat, and then I heard laughing. And I turned around, and there's my stepfather laughing, because he was the bear. I was so scared. I mean, that's the, that's the natural response for us when life is scary. self Preservation, protection, flee, hide, run, just you know, try to be safe. And, and what we see here with Joab and his men is courage, is bravery, even against the odds. Deuteronomy 31, 6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And what we've seen down through the ages is God's people being courageous people. God's people 
walking out in faith. God's people waging war. God's people always on attack. God's people being willing to speak against the, the, the evils of this world. God's people not being afraid of the consequences that it might mean imprisonment and it might mean jail time. It might mean death. If I don't speak, the rocks will cry out. Well, I think what we desperately need in the church today is more courageous men and women. We need people who are willing to even put themselves in harm's way for the sake of Jesus. Because I think what has happened is we have become so safe, we've become so comfortable, we want to live the gospel life, but we also want to have our cake and eat it too. And we, we definitely don't want people opposing us, that's for sure. We don't want to put ourselves at risk. We want people to love us and, and, and embrace us. And, and friends, we need courage. We need to pray for boldness. We need to pray for fearlessness. As I look out the world, and, and realistically, I've made it halfway through at least, unless I get to live to be pretty old, and I look out and I look at my children, my, my hope and my prayer is that I'm raising godly men and a godly woman who are gonna be brave and courageous because I think you're gonna need it in this country in the days and, and weeks and months and years to come. So we see not only the fight against, we see the fight above. And then he goes on and he says, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. May the Lord do what seems good to him. He's resting in God's will. Because the end of the day, isn't that all we can do? Have you ever had a work project that was really big, really important? Maybe it was a sales pitch, whatever it was, and you did everything you could do. Maybe it was a health crisis. Maybe it was sports. Whatever you did, you got to the game day, you got to the event, you got to the sales pitch, but The only thing you can do at this point is leave the results in God's hand. I've done everything I can do. That's all I can do. And that is Joab's heart right here. That's all he can do. He's like, we're here. We're going to be courageous. We're going to fight. We're not going to back down. And we're going to see what God's plan is. We'll rest in his goodness. It's what Jesus does in Luke 22, 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's the idea that the goodness of God is worth trusting in, that God's goodness is better than my goodness. Romans 8, 28, we quote it all the time. God works all things for the good. Psalm 145, verse nine, the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies over all of his works. And what Job is saying, whether we win or lose, we're gonna rest in the goodness of God. We saw that in the book of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said, we're not gonna bow down and and worship you. We're not gonna do what we know is wrong and we'll let God decide and God can rescue us but even if he doesn't rescue us, we're gonna rest in his goodness. So are you resting in the goodness of God for your life? As you look out at the obstacles, as you look out at the problems that you're going through, maybe it's marital problems, maybe it's health issues, maybe it's finances, maybe it's work, whatever it is, and this is difficult, friends, because we love control. 
Are you casting your anxiety upon him? Are you resting in his goodness? That I know what I want, I know what I desire, I know how I would like God to answer this prayer, but at the end of the day, God, I'm gonna rest in your goodness because I know you know what's good for me. You, sometimes I look back at life and all the times that, man, if God would have gave my definition of good, how bad it would have turned out. But God's good has always been good to me, even when in the surface it has appeared to be bad. So we not only see the resting in God's will, lastly, we see the result of God's wrath. He goes on to verse 13. So Joab and the the people who are with him, they drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishah and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. So they end up not even fighting, it seems. But then the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, so they gathered themselves together. And Hadazar uh, sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadazar, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together. They crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought uh, with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots, 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadazar saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they had made peace with Israel and became subject to him. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. So the initial victory by fleeing, hired hands left, but then they don't learn from their mistake. Remember, the Syrians had no reason to be in battle with David. They were hired. And maybe they're worried about their street cred. They were hired, and then they backed out of fighting. So they kind of regroup, but they don't learn from their mistake. I mean, do you always learn from your mistakes? Everybody nod your head no, because we're humans, and that's what we do. I, I, I broke a lawnmower this week, and then I broke it worse, if that's possible. I even, I, and the neighbor even got to watch me do it, and I think he's like, well, he's a, he's a clever guy. And I did, and yeah, it was just bad. So if you know how to fix a lawnmower, come see me afterwards. We'll, we'll, we'll coordinate a time. Uh, but yeah, it, that's what we do. We don't learn. So, and the truth is, kind of big picture here, you don't oppose God's people. You don't join forces with the Ammonites. You don't allow pride to control you. Proverbs 16, 18, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So they explain away the defeat, they regroup, and it results in huge casualties. Think about this, 40,000 men, specifically horsemen, they all died that day because the Syrians were foolish and they opposed the king. So they repent, though. They make peace. They decide to be subject to Israel, and they decide we're not going to partner anymore with the Ammonites. I think what we see in all of this is the consequences of rejecting the king and the hope of reconciliation for those that realize the error in their ways. Do you see the danger? Do you see that you either are for or against And friends, we don't want to ever, ever experience what the consequences are for rejecting the king. One of my 
my wife's best friends, her husband's an avid hunter. Actually, he was a part of Covenant early on when we started it. They live out in Willard, Ohio, so they moved many years ago. And I remember one hunting season, he kept trying to get a deer. And he's a, he's a great hunter, but he was also a greedy hunter. And I remember early on, I was like, he went out the one day and I talked to him after. And I said, hey, did you get a deer? He's like, I could have. He's like, there was a pretty decent sized buck. But he's like, I'm pretty, it's early in the season. I'm convinced I'm gonna get a better one. Well, days turned into weeks. I said, hey, did you get the bigger one? No, no. I think he maybe got a deer at the end, but he ended up getting not even a buck. So he looked back with regret. He's like, I had the shot. I could have took it, but I assumed I would get a second chance. I assumed I would get a better opportunity. Isn't that the risk when we pass opportunities? Because I, I think as you get older, you realize second chances aren't guaranteed. Listen to what Paul talks about related to this in Romans 2.4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. Second Chances are not guaranteed. That's why Hebrews, Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, let there be any of you an evil and believing heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. As it said today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Translation and all that. Embrace the king while you can. Accept him while you can. Don't reject. If he is offering you his hesed, his loving kindness, embrace it with all that you got. Because there is no guarantee. So if you're sitting here today and you have not embraced the hesed, the loving kindness of God, and you're like, I'm, I'm interested in it, but you know, I'm not ready to see change in my life. You know, when I'm a little bit older or uh, when, when I'm this and that, maybe when I have a few more answers uh, explained to me, then I'm going to. Friends, you don't know if tomorrow is going to happen. You don't know if an hour from now is going to happen. So if God's... Loving kindness is being offered to you. Embrace it. Listen to the words of Psalm 2 as we close. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now and we acknowledge that way too often we presume your patience. We presume your kindness. We presume second chances. God, help us to realize that none of that is guaranteed. Help us to be a people who fully embrace the kindness offered to us in Christ. We pray for anybody here today that doesn't know Jesus, that they would embrace him as Lord and Savior this day, this hour, this moment. 
We pray for those who are embracing God, that they would uh, appreciate the magnitude of what we have in Christ and that we would take this message and we would offer the loving kindness of you to the nations. And in the meantime, Lord, as we face opposition, as, we, as we're hated by this world, Lord, help us to rest in your goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we respond through song?